never seen any Star Wars. You've <laughs> seen any Star Wars? It's really shocking to see. I've, I've like blown away so many people saying that. I think it's more like you get to a certain age and you haven't, and you're so used to saying you haven't. Maybe one day. You should, your tagline should just be on everything. Like in social, I'm a novelist that lives in Brooklyn and has never seen <laughs> any of the Star Wars films. Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts. Another week ends, which is sort of like our grace-infused Christian cosmopolitan's guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week, at least as we see them. In just a few moments, our conversation of the contents and highlights of Another Week Ends will begin. But first, I had the distinct privilege of sitting down this week in New York City with novelist Caitlin Detweiler. Her new novel is called Transcendent. She calls it young adult fiction, but I think it's a great book for adults of any age. I loved it, and I think you would too. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Caitlin as much as I did. Caitlin Detweiler, thank you for being on the Mockingcast. You're very welcome. When you are writing a novel, do you tell your friends, like you're at a cocktail party or something, you're like, I'm working on a novel? It's funny, you know, the the first book for Immaculate, I, my friends were super plugged in, in hindsight, maybe too plugged in, to the point where they would read some of them chapter by chapter. Like I was, very, I was like Dickens, like it, it, they were caught up, like it was a serial my mom was reading. And everyone would weigh in like immediately, bit by bit, and it was a little overwhelming. Um, it's like it's like what, like at a, at a like a wedding rehearsal dinner, and people are like, "Okay, you should do this." Yeah, at my cousin's wedding, it was really beautiful, and you're just like, "Look, let's get it done." It was a lot of it was, it was a lot of chefs in the kitchen throughout the whole process, and they all felt you know super invested by the time it came out, which was great, and it felt like such a community effort. And then with the second one, uh, a few of them read it in a first draft. No one read chapter by chapter. I don't, not even my mom. Um, and now you know I've recently finished a third, like very rough early days draft, and. No one read it before I sent it to my boss slash um, agent since it's the same agency I work at. Uh, so this one was scarier, but it was really awesome to just kind of be alone with it for it was about nine months that no one else read it. And this one, of course, is transcendent. Yes. Yeah. And, and so let's just say it's someone that does not has not read any practice chapters or any, any rough drafts. And they're, and they're like, OK, what's the novel about? What do you say? Well, I say that it opens with the Disney World being bombed. Um, so it's li- it's a feel good. Ultimately, story. I hope it's not feel good in the beginning. But for me, uh, the reason for that is that I wanted to bring the world into a place of like so much darkness and despair that people are kind of desperate to believe in in something more and something better and something bigger. And uh, the main character, Iris, um, a seventeen year old girl living in Brooklyn uh, witnesses, you know, this on the news. She's not there firsthand. She doesn't, she doesn't know anyone. She, you know, she feels for these people, but feels disconnected from it um, until a few, a few weeks later, someone ends up on their doorstep, a, a secret from her parents past. And it kind of blows up everything about Iris's identity in a way that really deeply connects her to, to what happened in Disney and to what 
the world is looking for now in the aftermath. Do you want to read a, a little bit from it? Yeah, I would love the to. The Disney section. Yeah. Do you have uh, do, you, do you have your own copy or you can use my I copy? Thank you. Should have. I have a, a massive stack of them in the office right now because we get my copies and the agency copies and there's like 25 books right now that I have to find homes for. And your day job is literary agent. Right? Uh, yeah, I'm a literary agent by day. Um, and my my boss is also my agent. So you have a very lovely family connection to everything going on. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a really complicated like set of roles. No, you know, it was only really complicated the day I sat down to tell her I was working on the first book because I was so terrified. I'd been there for a few years at that point. But, you know, we could talk about everyone else's writing all day and it was very natural and comfortable. And then telling her I wrote a book like I, I, mean, I was like profusely sweating. I couldn't breathe. Like I wanted to vomit on her like it was. But she was lovely about it and she read it and really connected with it. And I. I can't imagine working with another agency. I think our clients too would be like, oh, like you see what's going on here and you you don't want your book. <laughs> Is this like being like if you were in like the theater and like you're going from like lighting or production onto the stage? Yeah, kind of thing? It, it definitely, you, you know, both sides of it in like a cool way, but also a very scary way because there are no scenes, there's no secrets and your expectations are more realistic, which I think is a good thing. Um, but you just understand the process may be a little too much sometimes. <laughs> that's that's fair. Yeah. It's grounding though. It's grounding. So this is the opening of the book you're reading from? Yes, the very the very first pages. And I called the section Descent. Where were you the day Disney World was bombed? This is a question that will haunt my generation for the rest of our lives. The twenty fourth of August, an awful ghoul now, still so fresh in our memories, fading into a hazier shadow that will walk beside us until the very end. Our skin will prickle as we drive by a summer carnival or see pictures of an old castle and its arching majestic towers when we tuck our own children into bed someday and they ask us to read them a story filled with princes and princesses. Because our fairy tale ended that day. Our castles were covered in blood. This type of question is not new, of course. Each generation has its own markers, its own moments that were so devastating. So beyond comprehension that the world stopped spinning when they first heard the news, the fundamental truths of their existence, their everyday certainties stripped away and shredded into a million incongruous little pieces. Where were you when the JF when JFK was shot, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers? We come together in the wake of these epic tragedies, find a bittersweet new unity that bridges any former divides. We hope for change. We promise ourselves and each other that this won't happen again, can't possibly happen again that this time our world will be different. Then it does happen, somehow worse than the last time, despite our intentions. Our world, it is not so different after all. Humanity is predictable in its restlessness and in its frustration, its ability to cause destruction, and its ability to so soon forget. But we cannot forget this. If there is a next time, if there is a grander, more terrifying next time, the world will end. It must. Because how could there be worse? How could there possibly be anything worse without our whole broken, beautiful world going up in flames? So you've chosen to write a book that deals with terrorism and religion. I mean, you know, they're deeply religious themes. There are themes of extremism, terrorism. And you know, what's really interesting to me is that the main character, Iris, seems to have a really, in the midst of a lot of chaotic upheaval in her life, seems to have an incredibly resilient and stable family background, like family situation to engage this horrific event. Mm -hmm. And then the there's a kind of, I don't want to have the big reveal, but <laughs> there's something that comes out about her identity that makes her a tabloid reality. 
are you do you, are you pretty tight with your family? I mean, is this because oh, I'm incredibly close. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely stems from that. So, you, so some of this is comes from a a deep connection to your own family. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier. Yeah, to write because um, her relationship with her family really is beautiful, and yet there's something about like uh, a secret that's kept about her identity, and I'm wondering like how do we because then it, that really is disruptive a little bit to this to this mm-hmm. you know pretty solid Brooklyn family. Uh, so I mean, is there something there? Is there a warning? It's to so her? hard to talk about the secret. I know to talk yeah. around it. Yeah, uh, there's something you know unique about her identity that you know that her mom around her birth or unique circumstances that, you know, she doesn't know about. They do a great job of hiding it. So, I mean, is there, it seems like there's this deep tension at the heart of of the book and about her family relationship because they're so close. And yet the intimacy is almost really ruptured because the secrecy around the nature of her birth, it seems it, it, it almost pulls the fan. It pulls really hard at the, at the, mm-hmm. at her connection with her family. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's tough because it really asks the question of, sometimes is not a lie, but withholding information um, important and okay to do. You know, it wasn't a secret that was kept from her to to hurt her. It was ultimately, um, you know, to help her, or at least that's what her parents thought. But it's still that idea of being capable of lying, even if it's for the right reasons, like always feels troubling when you're the person that doesn't know because it's like if I couldn't read from you that there was this huge thing that you weren't telling me like what what other things could there be and how can I ever know for sure that I you know can trust you again yeah like if we are if if at heart what we want right as human beings is to know and be known like once we have a secret we have to keep like at least one part of us is pretty walled off, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and, and, and you expend always at least some emotional energy thinking about it. Yeah. Or, yeah. And I, don't, I like it, it. It's not black and white that you're, you know, awful because you lie and her parents, especially in this case, um, you know, have good reasons and are good people. So you can't, like you can be angry, but you can't be angry. Like I think, especially as a teenager, like you really want that, that clear emotion you know, and it's, it's tough when you're, so, you're so torn between those two sides. Yeah. And there's something, I mean, the circumstances around her birth are, there's a supernatural dimension to this and it really causes her to ask some deep questions. And she says this, our main character, Iris here, she says, but I was no miracle baby, no daughter of any kind of God. I'd never believed in God. My parents had never taken Caleb and me to church except for funerals and baptisms and choir recitals. They didn't identify as Christians. They'd always just said they believed in a greater power, a higher purpose. I believed in people, though I believed we create our own destiny, our own happiness, and our own sadness, too. It's interesting because, you know, the the fastest growing religious group in America today is the nuns, uh, you know, the non, not like the Sally Field flying type, I mean, the, the non-affiliateds, right? And so it seems like she comes from that kind of background. Like they're very virtuous people. They volunteer to soup kitchen. They, they're creative. They seem to have like solid moral values. And yet in the midst of this tragedy and these deep questions of mystery of life, it almost feels like she's like, I feel ill-equipped here to mm-hmm. do it. So it's like, did you grow up? Like in a, in a religious kind of tradition or was your background more like Iris's? 
My background is like her mom's background, um, which you, you get some of from this story and, um, and my mother and my other book, Immaculate, which is kind of the, the prequel to this. If you, if you know, you read Transcendent and what more, but her mom, um, was raised in a very religious household as I was. I was Lutheran. Um, uh, my mom works at a church. She's the director of Christian education. I think about to be a, a deacon is going to be the oh, new wow. title as of. As of January. Congrats to mom. Yeah, she's pretty cool. Big year for you guys. Deacon, book release. It so is. Big it year is. for the Detweilers. Yeah. And I mean, she still works there. And my my dad is also very um, strongly connected to the Lutheran church where I was raised and I served on council and my brother served on council. And, you know, growing up there, I, you know, went through all of it, like catechism and go to sometimes multiple Bible schools and Sunday school. And then I taught Sunday school and, you know, never really questioned things. It was so easy. My pastor was so lovely. Um, just, you know, loved and accepted everyone unconditionally. So I never felt like religion, um, was, was oppressive to people because I'd never experienced it. Like my, my parents loved everyone. My pastor just, you know, espoused love in his sermons. And then I went to college and joined a, a Christian group on campus um, as, you know, I thought a way to make friends and like, where was, where was the, where was Kyle? You grew Penn, up at Penn you, State. Okay. You said, yeah. and you went to, you grew up in grew up suburban in, Philadelphia. Yeah. You went to Philly Penn State. Go Lions. Yeah. You so, went to main campus. I did. I was, I picked up a guy there in college on the way to Punxsutawney to see <laughs> Punxsutawney Phil. You did. I, some of my friends did that. I did not. It's, it's moments of freezing yeah. boredom punctuated by That's sheer the, terror. Like, what? Well, yeah, I wouldn't know. I don't it's, like cold. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very cold. Uh, okay, so you go and you join this group. Yeah, yeah, I, I joined a campus group. Um, really excited about it. My brother and his his now wife were part of it, and I went on a like welcome retreat that October, and it just opened my eyes to a piece of religion that I had not been experienced to before. Just comments like, "Oh, you know, Anne Frank. It's so sad how she had to go to hell after everything she lived through on Earth." and they were talking about some of their missionary trips and how, you know, all other religions were the devil's lies. And I had asked my leader, you know, okay, well, what if you're a kid growing up in, say, Africa and never, you know, had the chance to hear about God and Jesus before you died? Like, do you still go to hell? And she said, no, there's there's a certain age. I'm like, there's an age line in the Bible. And she's like, I'll find it and get back to you. And of course, I never so it's like it's So it's like an amusement park. Like, you must be this high to, yeah. to, to burn in these flames. You, yeah. you must be this old to... That's what it felt like. It was... I thought it was funny that she was going to get back to me. And like I said, never did. Um, so I left that retreat and just... I did, just didn't know where I fell on the spectrum anymore because it it re- it felt like the movie Saved. Have you seen it? Really, they're great film. They were these like really like beautiful, cool like people who were so clicky and like entranced by a religion in a way that at first I thought was like cool until that other side came out, and then I just didn't know what to do with organized religion after that point. And I talked to my my pastor a little from um, from home, and you know, he was like, "I don't believe any of these things these people are saying, and you shouldn't feel like you have to." And my mom and dad were, you know, kind of comforting me. But after that, I just had a really hard time um, going to church and like believing in the same way I had, and kind of picking and choosing. I think elements of what I felt connected to. 
but then not knowing what to think of the rest. Do, do you write? It's very interesting because my guess is that you live in Brooklyn now. And by the way, this is a very like there's certain movies like I think of like crimes and misdemeanors that are so New York. <laughs> when I when I see them, I just want to go right to New York. And I felt like there were certain points in reading this book. I just wanted to go to Prospect Park, and I, I don't even think I've been to Prospect Park before. But I felt you, your the descriptions of certain parts of Brooklyn are so thick and rich. I just like it's one of these things. It almost feels like it's not just a novel about this family, but it's a novel about Brooklyn. I mean, yeah. it's uh, which is beautiful. Thank and, uh, you. You know, it made me one of that. Yay, Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, no sleep till. <laughs> but my guess is that that a lot of your friends just statistically are much more like Iris and her kind of upbringing mm-hmm. than your than your own, where you know it's much more of an unaffiliated religious kind of context. Like, so what yeah. what draws you to still write about? Like, your first book had deeply religious themes, and so does this one. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I feel like even if I'm not going to church every Sunday at this point in my life, and I'm one of those you know those Easter Christmas kind of people, it's still so just baked into me. I mean, it's, it was such a, a big part of my life for, you know, 18, 19 years. And it's still, there are certainly, you know, values and beliefs that were a part of it that I still hold very close. Like I definitely still consider myself to be a spiritual person and I don't believe that this is it. You know, I really believe that we're more than just our bodies and more just, you know, more than our, our biology and what we are right now. And that there's, some someone something overseeing all of us i just can't maybe because i believed it for so long i don't know i just can't ever separate myself from that i don't think it's really interesting a lot of my friends who are jewish like i feel like if you're a christian believing and belonging feels so connected Mm -hmm. where a lot of my friends who are various in various parts you know locations social locations in judaism belief and belonging like they'll tell you look and go to an orth even an orthodox synagogue on Shabbat, and, you know, there's d- d- t- dozens of guys who don't believe in God saying they're praying. You know, so it's just yeah. an interesting kind of words in Christianity. Once you, it, it feels like once you're, for, you go through periods about uncertainty about beliefs, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to feel like you still belong. Mm-hmm. At, at one point, and maybe your response just kind of answered this question, but I'm sure. But uh, Iris is watching or reading this book that her mom wrote about her own birth, and she says, "I went to my room and locked the door." threw myself on the bed and then slowly, carefully peeled back the envelope. The top page was mostly blank, just a single quote attributed to Albert Einstein. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. So how are you living your life, Caitlin? Which one, which one do you, where were you at on Einstein's uh, topology? I try really hard to, to follow the everything is a miracle path because I think it's super depressing to look at it any other way. Um, I mean, part of me in writing both of these books, part of the, the fuel for that was that I just kind of hate that in the world we live in today, you know, we worship science to, to the point where, you know, we just, we expect it to explain everything and it leaves no, it leaves no room for, for any in between. And I just wanted to ask the question of like, if this really, you know, crazy, unexplainable thing happens, can we at this point as like jaded humans step outside of those limitations for a moment and just believe, you know, believe in the the people around us, the people we love and believe that maybe sometimes, you know, these 
bizarre things happen. These bizarre but beautiful things happen and we we don't have to be able to explain it. Yeah. It's almost like maybe you, you told this story a second ago about this, this religious group that the way they talked about religion felt really confining in light of some of the mysteries of life. I mean, maybe like certain kind of secular skeptical kind of feel just as confining. Yeah. They don't offer the tools or the vision or the imagination to, to, to deal with life as it, as it comes to us and all its complexities. Right. So, you know, one of the other things about the book that is really compelling is Iris, the main character, her capacity to connect with people that are very different than her and connect in ways that make them feel seen and known. Uh, it's, I, I, there's just parts of, uh, the book that I was, I was reading it in public places and was feeling very awkward because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, it's my face look emotional as I read this. Is that, is that been your own story or like, how does that, where does that come? I always w- I wonder with novelists, like how much of this is like comes out of who I am and how much is who I want to be or who I, or who I admire yeah. that is, is that, how does that connect with your own story? I think it's who I want to be. I mean, I think one of the, my favorite things about being a writer and just kind of the way your head is already wired to be a writer is that you are, you know, looking at people all the time and wondering their backstory. And I feel like it's, you know, giving benefit of the doubt to someone who's, you know, having a bad day and is nasty to you in the subway or like pushes, you know, just in the way here, like I'd been standing for a while and the door opened and someone like, you know, bumped me on his way in, disregarded like the stroller and other people. And, you know, it's really easy to just get angry at people, especially in the city where it's, you know, always overcrowded and there's just too much everything. But it's, you know, kind of stepping back and being like, oh, I wonder what happened in his day or in his week or, you know, in his life generally that that's made him do that. And it's hard to kind of step up and, and move to the next you know, step and like ask someone because it's New York and like scary things can happen. And there is a fine line of wanting to be kind to others, but then putting yourself out there too much where Iris in the book does, she puts herself out there every time. Um, and you know, I, I wish it was easier to do that. I wish that, you know, the, the people, you know, you pass on the street every day who, you know, need help. Um, it's kind of like you feel guilty if you, stop but then can't give that much or do that much but then you feel guilty if you keep walking and i think it's constantly wrestling with that and it kind of came out in the story yeah she's a very like graced person mm-hmm. and maybe that i don't know if that has to do with like this unique special identity yeah without you know giving away too much of that secret again i to our listeners you need to get the book <laughs> you don't have to wait that long into it to find out what the secret is um but, you know, thinking about what the definition of, you know, savior really is for us and thinking historically what that means, you know, how that person would act in our day to day, thinking about like a Jesus like figure now, like what that would mean as someone living in this crazy, beautiful city. Yeah. Like I, you think of like what would what would like a discovery of Jesus's identity been like as an adolescent or something? Mm-hmm. Like how do you, how do you grapple with coming into a sense that yeah. there's, you have a, a unique sense of identity. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, like this is like a vocation book, right? I mean, it's, and by vocation, I mean, I, I feel like we sometimes conflate occupation with vocation. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like not just what, what work we do or it, but like vocation calling who we are and, she, and Iris is figuring out 
who she is and who she's called into being. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like that speaks so much to like, it just seems like a place like New York, everybody's walking around trying to figure out what they're called. I mean, it's, it's a big city where people have big aspirations. Yeah. Do you feel like people are kind of, I mean, is that some of the, what comes to inspire the book? Like you probably know lots of people that are walking around thinking who the hell am I called mm-hmm. to be and why? Oh my God. I feel like this city maybe more than any other place. Um, you know, people are always just striving to, to be more than they are and better than they are in ways that I think are helpful and ultimately like very unhelpful also. Um, but one of the reasons, you know, I wanted her to be a teenager and why I love books about teenager generally, you know, it's, you just, you get all of those aspirations, but in such a heightened way because you're, you're figuring out everything about yourself. Uh, and it just, you just feel it so much as a 17 year old. And I just, I'm so interested in, in that perspective. So it tends to be a lot of what I, what I read and, and what I write just because it's, I love that, that heightened sensation that you have and all of the questioning that's happening. Was 17 a good year for you? You know, I feel like part of why I love the teenage experience is because mine was just like so easy and flat. And like, I was like a huge school nerd. Like I really just did so little besides like, study and write papers and was always hyper fixated on like college and everything that came next. And I wish that I'd like more in the moment, like slow down and, and been present. Cause I think it is really easy to, to keep looking for, you know, what am I, what am I going to do in college? And then like, I was already focused on, I thought I wanted to, to be a journalist and I was already like planning what, what grad school I was going to go to. And then I ended up hating journalism my first year at Penn State and was English instead. But I think it's just really easy at that age to like be too aspirational to the point where you lose sense of like that really special moment in time. Do you feel like you're able to like live present in Brooklyn now? I mean, are you able to sort of be where you're at or? Yeah, that's, you know, that's the the everyday goal. And like Iris in the book, I do a lot of yoga and I feel like that really, it really helps. It's super grounding and you have that time to yourself at the beginning of every day to just, you know, remind yourself where you're at and what you have to be grateful for. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the grace to like take life for what it is mm-hmm. and not need to force it into what you want it mm-hmm. to be or, yeah. or, or the sort of demands of like, it's gotta be this, it's yeah. gotta be this, but really receiving. That never works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Receiving life rather than mm-hmm. trying to take it or form it. Yeah. I like that a lot. Well, today is the, is your book launch today, right? Yeah. This is October 4th, right? October 4th. October 4th. Well, I'm officially naming this Transcendent Day. So our listeners should go get this book. They can get it anywhere books are sold, right? Amazon. They can get their Kindle the second they, they, while they're listening to this. You can. They can just get get it it now. I have love hate. I mean, I love physical books, but I do love having something immediately. Also, because I have very little space in my apartment. It's the, Bro- it's the Brooklyn <laughs> it's, solution. It's really, it is the Brooklyn solution. Kellen, thanks for making some time to talk to me. I know it's a busy day for you. Yeah, so thank no, you. No, it was my pleasure. And please write another one in this series. I'm going to go back and read Immaculate because I really... That is the beauty that they're, they're written as two standalones, but you can read in either order. Immaculate's a nice prequel. I love a good prequel personally, so I really like reading the later book and then having like this whole world to go back. Did you like the Star Trek pre- or Star Wars prequels? I've never seen any Star Wars. You've never <laughs> seen any Star Wars. It's really shocking to see. I've I've like blown away so many people saying that. I think it's 
more like you get to a certain age and you haven't, and you're so used to saying you haven't, maybe one day. You should, your tagline should just be on everything. Like in social, I'm a novelist that lives in Brooklyn and has never seen <laughs> any of the Star Wars films. You're that definitely, you're already seem incredibly interesting to me, but that would like, <laughs> that would be the cherry on Puts top. Over the edge. Thank you so much and good luck with, so with your book. Thank you. Morning, Mockingbird listeners. If that Mockingbird won't sing, David's going to buy you a diamond ring. Here again <laughs> with David Zoll, the animating force of all that is Mockingbird, coming to us live in studio from Charlottesville, Virginia, the bunker headquarters of Mockingbird itself. David, how are you? I'm this morning. I'm just like a hurricane of zeitgeist, just coming at you, ready oh, to animate the the world, the 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 podcast uh, sphere. And I'm gonna, you know, just tear down your walls and 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 wreck your uh, your basement. Hurricane joke, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Dude, I I remember one time at church. It was, it was right after a hurricane in New Jersey a couple years ago. My coworker Todd, he's a great guy. We're singing that song, you know, your love's like a hurricane. He just turns to me and goes, too soon? (laughs) Yeah, but it's not too soon. You preemptively did it. Like, you didn't even wait until you're just in the midst of the hurricane. You made the hurricane. I'm trying to, Scott, I'm trying to surf the wave that you have set in motion. That's what I'm trying to. I like that. Like like the hurricane that you actually actually are. I'm more like a monsoon. Jeff (laughs) Holsclaw sitting in again for Sarah Condon. Although no one can fill her shoes, someone has to sit in her chair. Jeff, where would you put yourself on the tropical storm index? Well, yesterday uh, it was pretty rainy, although I think it was totally unrelated. I'm looking out the window now and it's super nice. And so I'm just sitting here thinking if I'm alive in about 500 years, all of you are going to be living with me in the Midwest because uh, all the seaboards will be... uh, wasted in you know in in ruin so i'm just kind of like a uh an early uh speculator of the midwest you know we're gonna buy up some property and leave this to my descendants and then all you guys can move in so that's where i stand how does that how is that i love it well you didn't really identify on the spectrum but so you're a you're a you're a you're a spectator we were going in it in like hey he's a, you're he's a, a sunny tornado. day he's a, yeah, sunny, I'm a sunny, sunny day, day. guy okay. and you guys can come into the midwest and hang out with me that's fine i'm not a climate change skeptic i'm a climate change like advocate because like where i live in philadelphia i feel like i'll have beachfront property like my real estate value if if this if the exactly. if, if, if the if the oceans raise langhorn's going to become a beachfront town and i'm kind of into that because i like the beach as we all know i love the beach it will no longer be the jersey shore it'll be the bucks county shore which i'm hoping for <laughs> that'll scott uh, jones memorial your, beach yeah, that'll shorten your commute to to the beach too for vacation sake david let's just say in three weeks, I don't have any plans and I've got some discretionary income and could fly to the central time zone Midwest. Is there anything to do out there? Funny you should ask because uh, there is something incredible that to do in Oklahoma City the weekend of the 28th, 29th. Uh, that's a Friday and Saturday of October, three weeks from now. We're having our fall conference in Oklahoma City at All Souls Episcopal Church. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be free. It's going to be delicious. And I think, uh, you know, if you've never had a chance to experience Mockingbird in the flesh, this is a great opportunity and I would love to meet you. I'll be there and uh, 
Kerry Willard, who's been on the cast before, will be there. John Newton, who's been on the cast before, will be there. I really, hopefully, uh, highly encourage people to check it out. What's the cost again? The cost is uh, zero dollars and zero cents. And free. It, it will be all the proceeds will go to the support of the mocking cast. <laughs> Some of our listeners undoubtedly are walking around Whole Foods right now, listening to us on their smartphone with their podcast app of choice. David, why should they leave Whole Foods and go to Trader Joe's? Because the people at uh, Trader Joe's are so much friendlier. But the the other reason would be, uh, and the soup dumplings you can get at Trader Joe's are delicious. But the other reason would be that what the Harvard Business Review reported this week is that buying fair trade, all organic, everything can actually make you a meaner person. Now, this is one another one of these kind of Captain Obvious social science studies that we love to highlight. But um, the Harvard Business Review reported on a couple of recent studies on the phenomenon of moral licensing that was we was brought to our attention rec- most recently by Malcolm Gladwell. That basically says the more you pat people on the back for being moral or uh, responsible or ethical. David, David, who who tip who pointed you in the direction of Malcolm <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell? Who was that? I forget. Who was it? Uh, I mean, I, I it just unmemorable person. Just so I don't know who it was. I think moral it may, licensing clearly. You're- Clearly, you're Sarah being, Condon. You're being unkind today because you probably bought something organic. So now, like, I can treat Scott however I want. I just bought <laughs> a, you know, organic latte. Scott himself told us about moral licensing, uh, or told us about Malcolm Gladwell telling us about moral licensing. So the, but the article in question is really kind of uh, inter- amusing. It says, "Look on the back of a Starbucks cup, and you may find this message: You are a pioneer in using recycled cups. Everything we do, you do." Your business lets Starbucks do business in a way that's better for the planet. Like leading the way in cup technology with the first U.S. hot cups made with 10% post-consumer recycled fiber. Good for you, you. Oh, good for you. Kind of like a, you know, very clearly a pat on the back to whoever has just bought, is drinking this coffee. In fact, I've got a Starbucks cup here, but it doesn't have that message on it, unfortunately. The authors go on to say, seeing that Starbucks cup might make consumers care more about products made from recycled materials, but do such messages truly promote altruism? Or is it possible they could do the opposite and actually advance self-interested actions on the part of the consumers? And um, this is where the answer is yes, that uh, the moral licensing suggests that the latter might be true, that highlighting an individual's personal progress or contribution with regard to social impact actually backfires, that people afterwards were much more, after after receiving that message, were much more likely to buy non-eco-friendly batteries, for example. They felt that they had the justification the uh, permission to do something. Uh, I only buy non for I go into the storms like, what's the worst for the environment? Like, no, no. Is there anything where like the the casing is kind of cracked already? <laughs> the acid just you know tearing up the ozone. That's I want to be able to be tracked from a satellite. Like, oh look, there's Scott's walking to town because you can see the ozone being ripped like, <laughs> as he's walking. It's like around. a new view of the carbon footprint. You just want like the radioactive footprint. There, um, there is no carbon footprint. That's a, that's a myth. <laughs> but Scott, they get to a uh, they get to a uh, uh, the ending is like straight out of the New Testament. Cracked me up. It, don't the lesson here is don't be too smug about buying all organic everything. The best kind of ethical shopping is the kind that's done quietly. Do not parade your righteousness in front of others. You heard it here first, Whole Foodies. 
Matthew chapter. I know, exactly. Mm -hmm. I thought the interesting part of that uh, study that they mentioned was that uh, when you have these consumers get two messages, one is the moral pat on the back of like, you've done such a good job by buying this product. Uh, It created the moral licensing uh, where then you can go out and say, well, since I did one good thing, I can now excuse myself to do other more reprehensible things, you know, like have a box of chocolates or whatever. Uh, but then if the message was, um, you are participating in a company that's doing a, a good thing. And so the pat on the back isn't toward you, it's to the company. That created like a sustainable uh, kind of motivation. And so like the, the actual direct pat on the back is um, uh, kind of like leads you down the more licensing path. But the patting the company on the back actually inspires you to continue the behavior like you're participating in something bigger, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. So does that lend itself toward the yes. moral influence theory of the atonement? I think it does, right? <laughs> corporations are the you best. You heard it here first. <laughs> I love corporations. They're the, what, they, corporations are what make morality go round. <laughs> well, they are persons after all, so, so there we go. They're inspirational. Gov- Governor Ventura, what do you think? I don't know why the government even thinks it can give licenses for morality. I mean, the government's taking over our lives. <laughs> and what? Well, sorry. That, so basically, for our listeners, to give that context, Howard Stern had somebody this week on the show imitating Jesse Ventura when he was doing the news. And it took me five minutes to figure out that they, he was imitating Jesse Ventura. I, I, thought, like, I really thought it was Jesse Ventura until he said, well, I think 9-11, both theories are true. Uh, you know the 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 building uh it was knocked down, and then also the second was uh was the conspiracy, and they're both true. <laughs> like he would just say all these absurd things, so it was great. So I don't know, this might not make the edit, but also <laughs> tell us about the Bernstein <laughs> the Bernstein Bears. Yes, the Bernstein Bears. There's um when we're talking about moral licensing or just morality in general, uh, I think that there's no more moralistic series of books for children than the Bernstein Bears. I, I was a sucker for them when I was a kid, and my kids enjoy them. But uh, the New York Times ran a really interesting um, article about. Uh, I think it's how, how the Berenstein Bears found got salvation, and uh, in, in the magazine where they discuss how the Berenstein Bears have gone from just sort of espousing some more universal morality and, and good lessons, sort of kind of homespun nineteen uh, fifties America, don't cheat, don't eat junk food, yada yada yada, uh, into the straight up Bible. Uh, there's now sort of the Berenstein Bears and the meaning of Easter and the Berenstein Bears go to Sunday. Stan and Jan Berenstein's son, Mike, realized uh, they were getting such great feedback from religious uh, readers over the years um, who love the morality, uh, naturally, and uh, that they like looked into sort of making a separate series of books for Zondervan that looks and smells uh, exactly like the other Berenstein Bears books, but has, uh, you know, the Bible all over it, which is kind of a, which is a little discouraging uh, in terms of what it means people think of Christianity and how this is all sort of influenced. But I thought we should take the moment, not only not to highlight the Berenstein Bears alternative universe theory, but to highlight a few of the ways of the most awkward Berenstein Bears books that have occurred over the years. I don't know if you guys are fans, but maybe... First off, what I think is awkward is that these bears are walking around talking and no one's even asking. The government just gives us talking bears. (laughs) And we just accept it. I mean, it's COINTELPRO all over the place. <laughs> Scott and Jeff, did you thank, guys thank ever you, read? Thank uh, you, Governor. Thank you, Governor. 
Did you guys ever read uh, The Birds, the Bees, and the Berenstain Bears? The Berenstain Bears Lost in Cyberspace, the Berenstain oh. Bears and uh, the Bad Dream, the Berenstain Bears and uh, No Guns Allowed. I think that was the post-Columbine one. And the Berenstain Bears and the Giddy Grandma. These are You can find these all. But the, the worst is the Berenstain Bears and the New Neighbors, where it's revealed that... Uh, are they black uh, bears? Fam- I'm just wondering. Well, it's a f- actually no. It's a it's a it's a family of pandas moves in across the street, and it was revealed that that Papa Bear is a, is a huge bigot and doesn't like the Chinese. And um, one of the things that I I always find most offensive about those books now being a dad is how uh, and other people have written about this. The Berenstein Bears may in fact be one of the originators of the doofus dad stereotype. That if you anytime you read those books, that it turns out Papa Bear has to learn the lesson at hand as badly as the kids do, if not more. In fact, he's usually the most uh, flagrant offender. And I, uh, it's it's funny once or twice, and then over time you just be like, gosh, they've got this is the biggest doofus of a father you could possibly have, and it paints the mother as the you know policeman essentially. And this past week with these vice presidential debates, you had the use of the word dad is like a pejorative when you talk about Tim Kaine and uh, Mike Pence. It's like oh the dad debate, meaning like oh two guys that basically have uh, you know who cares? I, I don't know how that word became such a nasty thing, but. There you have how do we even know? How do we even know either of them is really dads? Sometimes <laughs> politicians hologram in children just to be more favorable. I mean, it's am, am I going to have to get security? Am I going to have to get security? <laughs> Where's Scott? Governor, 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 Scott? You need to go, Governor. <laughs> well, so, when I was reading that article, uh, yeah, I was kind of like, wait. So the most surprising thing about the Berenstein Bears is that. Uh, they're discovering religion. I was like, why don't they discover sexism or something like that? It's like the gender stereotypes, like you were saying, David, is so stark. And so I, like Amy Laurel Hall and others, like they do, they point to that comic or the, the book series is saying like, this is one of the kind of modern depictions of the gender split and the gender gap. And the representation of him as a father is so far from most realities that it's, uh, it's horrible. So yeah. <laughs> Bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life wherever I wander. Can we talk about something more fun like call out culture? I mean, this Bernstein Bears is so serious. Yes. Children's books are so serious. So you talk about like, oh gosh, it's like, geez, can a children's book just be a children's book sometimes? I know. Call out culture is probably the more interesting story and pro- it feeds right into it. Set- and I want to call out, I mean, I'll give you my example. I'm going to be a call out to someone that was calling out. Uh, Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. This is what like, it got my... Uh, tail feathers ruffled, as they say. Uh, the woman that wrote Seinfeldia uh, actually had this piece about the SNL debate, which most people saw because it was amazing, where Alec Baldwin played Trump. I mean, this man is clearly unfit to be commander-in-chief. Oh. He is a bully. Shut up. He started the birther movement. You did. He said change is a hoax invented by China. It's pronounced China. He hasn't released his tax returns, which means he's either not that rich, Wrong. not that charitable, Wrong. or he's never paid taxes in his life. Warmer. It's funny because Lorne Michaels just said, like, hey, uh, you have a Trump in you. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And I guess when Lorne calls, you know, you answer. But uh, she thought that it was 
too playful and they should have done dark sketches about what happens if Trump's policies are enacted and dystopian apocalyptic scenarios. Cause that's what I'm going to watch at 1130 on Saturday night. So I'm calling her out. Call What's her call out, out, baby. What's it? Wait, what's a call out? The call out culture, our friend, Sarah Condon. Uh, I wish she was here to discuss this actually, because uh, Sarah's um, herself, I think pretty good at calling people out, <laughs> but um uh, a call-out culture is uh, this sort of culture that we have online, especially where uh, anytime a, an individual, uh, you know, transgresses some cultural sensitivity, they are called out and they are sort of told that you know, publicly shamed is another way to talk about it. Shame. 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 On, on Twitter, Facebook, people are immediately uh, kind of harangued for making any kind of mistake. And um, what this writer who um, the article we we're talking about actually is from Films for Actions by Assam Ahmad, really, really great piece of writing. He says that what makes call out culture so toxic is not necessarily its frequency so much as the nature and performance of the call out itself. Especially in online venues, calling someone out isn't just a private interaction between two individuals. It's a public performance where people can demonstrate their wit or how pure their politics are. Sometimes it can feel like the performance itself is more significant than the content of the call out. This is why uh, calling in has been proposed as an alternative to calling out. Calling in means speaking privately with an individual who has done uh, some wrong in order to address behavior without making a spectacle. Of the address itself, this uh, I th- I think other people call it virtue signaling. When you're sort of when you're publicly criticizing someone, you're what you're really doing most of the time. It's when you do it publicly is you're signaling your own virtue, your own justification. Uh, he goes on to say it isn't an exaggeration to say that there's a mild totalitarian undercurrent, not just in callout culture, but in also how progressive communities police and define the bounds of who's in and who's out. More often than not, this boundary is constructed through the use of appropriate language and terminology, a language and terminology that are forever shifting and almost impossible to keep up with. But how do we hold people to account who are experts at using anti-oppressive language to justify oppressive behavior? I think that's one of the the great questions. Actually, this this piece came out in 2015, uh, so so it's completely outdated as we know. Um, but in fact, I think it's just become more and more relevant. How do you hold people to account who are experts at using anti-oppressive language to justify oppressive behavior? How do you do it, guys? Uh, I- that's a great question, actually. Um, take it offline. <laughs> Throw away Twitter and Facebook. Um, I think uh, this is the call-out culture. And a lot of people have talked about this is how, you know, it maybe it's part of the the progressive or liberal mirroring of fundamentalist culture is they're so upset about the intolerance and exclusiveness of fundamentalist kind of culture. And it doesn't have to be religious fundamentalism. It could be anything. Um, and how this just, uh, people are saying, you you guys are doing the exact same thing with the, the call-out culture. You know, it's not like calling people out for, you know, having premarital sex. It's not calling people out for, you know, drinking or whatever. But you're like, you're doing the, all the same thing. It's all the same tools, public shaming, um, um, and then the virtue signaling also is that you're calling people out, not because it's going to help them and you probably don't even care about them, but you're just showing your own virtue. So, um, I don't know how to solve it. My kind of more Anabaptist leanings in, you know, always goes to the call in, you know, like you should be mm-hmm. exploring people's stories. Why do people maybe not have these tools? Why do they not care? <laughs> you know, and, uh, really getting to the heart of it. I think calling out usually, uh, sticks at the level of, uh, knowledge. 
you know, like you didn't say the right thing in the right way. Uh, and it never even attempts or doesn't care about like the heart or something like that. Like what are, you know, what are people's actual desires? So, uh, I don't think it's something you could solve online or even in a podcast. Sorry, Scott. Oh, the governor's back. <laughs> no, I said Scott. Oh, God, I was going to say, what would, what would Jesse Ventura say? Well, I mean, you know, I, he, I spend time, you know, in Mexico offline six months of the year just for this purpose. So don't even watch American television shows. Now, I'm actually reading a book right now called Patience with God, the story of Zacchaeus continuing in us by Thomas Halick, who's a, he's a psychotherapist and he became a priest uh, in the Czech Republic when it was communist. It was, you know, when the Czechoslovakia was communist. And it's about atheism. And he says, you know, that, that basically uh, his argument is that the only real difference between faith and atheism is uh, impatience. Not like, you know, so the atheist is impatient. And he talks about being patient with atheists. And he has this beautiful, I mean, the metaphor of Zacchaeus, but I think of like the story of Zacchaeus. It's like call in, you know, it's not called out. It's you, you know, I'm, I'm going to eat with you tonight. It's not like Jesus said, before I eat with you, make sure you're a respectable Jew. Da, da, da. Like, I would love to know what that dinner conversation was like with Jesus yeah. when Zacchaeus goes out and just says, hey, if you, if you even have a claim on me, I'll pay it back double. Thank God that God is in the practice of calling in, not calling out. Speaking of God and belief in God, mm. uh, some great stuff this week. Uh, I, I found this uh, piece thanks to Jeff and Jeff's Facebook account. Glad he's, you know, glad he's not offline. I was not calling uh, anyone out. Ish, you weren't. You were just offering something. That a guy named William Walker, who David, I believe, uh, knows some people at your brother's church. He is a, a minister, an Anglican minister down there in in Charleston, and he wrote a really interesting conversation review between um, uh, Tim Keller's new book, kind of putting in conversation Tim Keller's new book and Science Mike's book about belief in God, mm. which I found helpful. Yeah, I, I really liked this review too. It was really thoughtful and also accessible. Um, Keller's got a new book out called Making Sense of God, an invitation to the skeptical. And uh, William uh, sort of surfaces his um, own kind of resistance to Keller a little bit on the grounds of his popularity, and um, but then says it's a really impressive book and uh, kind of a really it's Keller kind of as he says making sense of God, uh, and and the argument being quite compelling. In fact, his his main question after reading it uh, is perhaps it makes too much sense. I think, um, you know, I think, and I think that there's, um, there's something to that. Uh, so, uh, maybe this is a little too accessible, a little too rational or something like that. That's what I'm left wondering is, though it might sound a bit strange, could it be that Keller's understanding of Christianity makes a little bit too much sense, that there's not enough of a leap required here? Um, and he quotes Kierkegaard there. And then he goes on, though, to sort of contrast that with finding God in the waves, how I lost my faith and found it again through uh, science by Mike uh, Mahargu, Mahargu, I think I'm saying that right, who's known for this um, podcast, The Liturgist. And he tells a story of sort of uh, being a Christian and kind of walking away and then coming back and come, sort of his, his reconstructed faith is uh, 
more ambivalent, leaves room for a lot more uh, mystery than his Southern Baptist upbringing. I mean, no, no big surprise there, I guess. But uh, he, he sort of is a really, really an expert at explaining scientific topics uh, accessibly for the perspective of the layperson. But I think Walker's more interested in the way his uh, faith kind of is constituted and how it's, it, it's more mystical. It's um, more experiential, more pragmatic rather than uh, Keller's sort of more dogmatic faith. Um, and I, th- I think, uh, you know, it's, it, these are two voices that I think, it, as Walker points out, it's important to have both of these guys in play. And they have a lot to say to each other. Um, he says, if, if Keller leaps too easily, I will admit that at points it feels like Mike doesn't leap very far. His subjective posture towards faith is based so significantly on evidence and experience that it may predetermine what can be said of its object. Thus, at moments it would what? seem McCargue is stalled by Kierkegaard's objective uncertainty, even as Keller is unfettered by it. Well, one of my favorite colleagues in the WWF was Leaping Lenny Poffo, <laughs> uh, who was also the poet laureate of the World Wrestling <laughs> Federation. <laughs> He'll be here all week, ladies and gents. He'll be here all week. It's yeah, I uh, it's interesting. In one of my favorite books, and I, I can't say enough good about it. It uh, is for our listeners who it's it's a short book. It's less than 150 pages. It's called Love Alone Is Credible mm-hmm. by Hans von Balthasar, and he talks in, in in the third section called the Third Way of Love. He says this: neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable, but Christianity disappears the moment it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding in thinking or living, knowledge or deed. And he goes on to sort of show how basically love is what makes uh, Christianity intelligible and the, the love made known in the crucified God. Uh, and, and he says, you know, the only, there, there's no real bridge, but then kind of, if there was, it's eros and beauty because what we find, uh, what we love, we find beautiful and that which we truly find beautiful, we can't help but love. And so he sort of talks about what's, how the self, self emptying love of God is the Christian aesthetic. Mm. Which takes us also over. Jeff, well, by the way, did you thank, do you know Bill Walker? Uh, I know him uh, briefly. And actually, I was going to say, I, I know him in different contexts. Uh, but I was going to say, he actually studied Van Balthazar. So he's intimately familiar with all those texts. He did his dissertation on uh, Van Balthazar. So, what yeah. a good guy. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> Just to jump in really quick, though, and then I haven't read either of these books. Um, but as far as like. By the way, for our listener, for our listeners, Science Mike is going to be a guest on the show in a couple of weeks. I actually have talked with oh, the publicist. Great. So just, uh, well, good. He will be, he will be there. I just, the book is in the mail right now to me. The, the idea of, you know, and again, I don't know if Bill's criticism is fair there about, you know, whether, uh, science Mike doesn't make a leap far enough. Sometimes I do worry. Uh, so, so this is just my reading though, you know, is that those who kind of really grapple with kind of the doubt of faith and they kind of leave kind of the more certainty I do worry. And I hear sometimes like, about like where we make a virtue of doubting um, rather than kind of it being okay, to, you know, and, and that's people become the champions of doubt and skepticism and then they, you know, wrap it kind of. It. So I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I get worried. And so that's why, uh, Scott, I liked how you kind of redirected it. Like it's not about certitude. It's not about doubt. You know, it's about desire uh, and love. And so how do we have the conversation about faith and doubt that doesn't, that doesn't stay on the epistemological level, 
Um, and even the, yeah, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't demonize doubt. Like in some conservative circles, doubt is demonized. And then some more progressive circles, doubt is right, lionized. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Really doubt. We just have to like make it a normal part of human anthropology. And, yeah. <laughs> just like take right. it Right. And I, that's how I think the Jewish scriptures are is like, it's, you know, especially when you read the Psalms is the doubt and the faith are mixed in, you know, but I think the longing for God kind of comes out really strongly. So, and I don't know what uh, mysticism means in this context, but I know mysticism classically has always been to leave kind of the level of thought and to uh, journey into the realms of love and passion that become either a blinding light or a, you know, impenetrable darkness or the, you know, the cloud of unknowing and things like this. So I think we do like sometimes the questions of doubt and faith, I think become so overdetermined, even with like the, you know, new atheists and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, uh, it's a total, we can get lost down those, those rabbit holes. So there, there we go. I'm in. Yeah. We also have two pieces, right? Like kind of related to this. Uh, Mark Galley wrote a nice, piece about the beauty about the, kind of the beauty of Christian orthodoxy. And then our friend Duo Dickinson recently on the podcast Force of Nature. He is what's more than a hurricane. He is like a he's a category 9 zillion hurricane. Guy's just a polymath and and a fun 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 guy. And he wrote a piece about architecture and religion. Which I thought was was really beautiful, profound. That's true. So, uh the first article you mentioned is by Galley, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and a, a friend of of Mockingbirds and a friend to Mockingbird. And uh it's a, it's actually the sort of a kind of 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 his new of a short book which I I'm definitely going to pick up called Beautiful Orthodoxy. Um and he he basically thinks that um what we've done in as 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 Christians is we've kind of We've split these things too much, and that that um, uh, what does he say? Uh, the people are so angry today, and, and on all sides of the divides, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we see history as an ever increasing march to enlightenment. If you believe that things should get better and better, then it's infuriating when they do not. And um, Galley thinks that it's not just that things aren't getting better, that there something has gone terribly wrong. Deep deep within, we believe that life should be good and true and beautiful, but it is far from it. He says, Christians believe that our longing for the good, the true, and the beautiful finds its completion in uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, some of us hold tenaciously to the liberating power of Christian doctrines and the wisdom of Christian ethics, but in our grasping, we lash out at the evils of our time, being prophetic about objective truth and traditional values uh, and the Berenstein Bears. And he doesn't <laughs> actually put that in there. Um, and in doing so, we inadvertently imply that God loves only those who believe and obey the truth, namely us. Consequently, we become uh, across as smug and self-righteous, embracing an ugly orthodoxy, though, but then others in reaction soften the gospel to make it more relevant and pleasing to the ear of a culture that so desperately wants to feel good about itself. We are quick to, quick to marginalize what is derisively called dogma and question values that have stood the test of time. The last thing we want to do is to make anyone feel uncomfortable about their choices. God is, after all, our very creator, and he accepts us just the way he made us, or so says the logic of a beautiful heresy. But how, so that is beautiful, but it's heretical. So how do you then uh, reconcile what seems to be irreconcilable? Um, do you give up orthodoxy, or do you give up beauty, or can they both coexist? Can God be both fully human and uh, fully man can uh, something be true and beautiful at the same time. One of my favorite lines is the way he sort of is proposing a, a reconciliation of the two called beautiful orthodoxy. Duh. Um, 
But he says Christian ethics are not merely a refined form of moralism. Jesus, in fact, seems to distance himself from such a common understanding of the good. Uh, and he talks about his exchange with uh, the rich young man. Um, the emphasis of his ministry not, falls not on the good as such, but on the good that is called mercy, the grandest theme of the New Testament. God's mercy toward the ungodly in Jesus Christ changes the calculus of the good life. The criterion of good is not so much excelling at ethics or religion, but living and acting with a deep sense that one is a failure in ethics and religion. The self-acknowledged failure to live up to God's law paradoxically cultivates a radical new way of conceiving of the good life. And this is sort of the seed of what he's proposing as beautiful orthodoxy, and it's sort of bathed in uh, mercy. And um, uh, it, I, I, it's, it sounds pretty good to me, uh, but what, what did you guys think? I'm I'm asking Scott this time. We'll we'll get we'll get the governor's uh, not opinion the go- later. Not the go- not the governor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking. There's this great line uh, in Chesterton's Orthodoxy where he says the pre-modern man would rather settle for two truths in tension than a half truth. And so sometimes at the heart of it's it's like you know uh, the the mystery of Christian faith isn't behind the revelation of God in Christ. It's it comes full frontal with the revelation. You know, it, and hey, but uh, Chesterton says like in a in a chapter called The Suicide of Thought. He says that um, the hatred of a hero is more generous than the love of, of a philanthropist. There is a huge and heroic sanity of which moderns can only collect the fragment. There is a giant of whom we can see only the lopped arms and legs walking about. They have torn the soul of Christ into silly strips, labeled egoism and altruism, and they are equally puzzled by his insane magnificence and his insane meekness. They have parted his garments among them, and for his vesture they have cast lots though the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout mm. and I, I thought of that passage the whole time i was reading the galley piece that this importance of the beauty of of orthodoxy is is the paradoxes and the tensions that do require the the subjective leap of leap of faith like the the the, ob, the the object needs to be beautiful to you know to arouse the sinful and needy subject yeah, you know, those who were at our conference a couple of years ago, uh, Will McDavid did a masterful job, I think, of, of, of talking about this with his talk about the, the airplane. So people who haven't, haven't, haven't heard that and studying and, the, and hearing the beautiful song, that is total follow-up here. But Jeff, I think I... Well, I was going to say, I think I was gonna, I'm going to mail in a minority report here, just a little bit, but this is very uh, autobiographical. I think, like, I'm a low church, like, Californian evangelical. And so my sense of beauty... Yeah. But I repeat myself. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so my, but uh, so like my sense of beauty is not connected generally with like art or uh, refinement. You, you guys are East Coasters, right? You know, and, and so my sense of beauty has always been very connected to like the natural world. I grew up going to the ocean, redwood forests, mountains, and things like this. And so I always have trouble. Like I love von Balthasar. I love theologians talking about beauty, but I, I always have trouble connecting beauty. Um, with kind of like theological doctrines, and maybe it's just because I'm too naturalistic or something, and like I'm not you know, like so. It's, beauty for me is not like a cult. Well, I'm just saying it's not like a cultural experience. It's very much a, na- a natural one. So, I, like when I was reading that, I was thinking like I get it, like a beautiful orthodoxy, and I get the criticisms of kind of like the dead orthodoxy that's very dogmatic and cold, and then kind of like the you get the 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 beautiful heresy, you know, the kind of you know, the flirting with doubt or it's exciting or something like that. So I don't know, like, I guess for me, when I was reading that, I would have resonated more if he had said something like a passionate orthodoxy. Like we need like some, like, and I think beauty and passion are connected. And so I like, um, and so like 
the beauty should elicit this passion. So the passionate orthodox. So I don't know. I don't think I'm saying anything different. That's just the way, like the way I approach these subjects is maybe a, along a couple different avenues. So I just want to throw that out there. If there's any of the listeners who are like, yeah, that whole skull guy is not crazy, but so I don't know that that's, that's mm. what do you guys think? No, I think you're, there is, I think that's a good point though. I think that like the passion is the subjective pole and the beauty is kind of the objective pole, right? Like the, like, I think there's something they're, they're, they're related. I mean, they're, you know, yeah. So is, is the orthodoxy then our response to God's beauty or is the orthodoxy part of God's beauty? So maybe that's part of it. Like how do we situate these, this idea of what makes orthodoxy? I usually put it more on the God's didn't work in it, but it's, you know, it's part of the human production of it. So maybe that's why I lean toward the passionate pole. Whereas God, the Trinity. The answer is yes. Well, God, if you were to say like the triune God is beautiful, then I'd be like, yeah, for sure. And I'd be passionate about it, baby. Passionate. Mm. Uh, let's give the final word to Duo, our friend Duo Dickinson, who will be back on the podcast in a couple months. Uh, he wrote this great piece, right, on architecture and religion and how the danger of like irrelevance. And he says, he concludes the piece by saying, the decline of organized religion was not caused by the parishioners who left the pews. It was caused by the irrelevance of what organized religion offered them. If you do not believe in God, religion has no meaning. If the work of architects is primarily created to please other architects, its beauty becomes harder to value for those who are not architects. We can continue to preach to ourselves, but like the emptying out churches, that could be a small shrinking market. Mm, great it final a, word. It's a sin to bore people with the gospel. Amen. Yeah. I mean, to, to, is, and I'm not sure we need any more podcasts that sort of to just a, a uh, internal monologue uh, or dialogue is, 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 is a generous word sometimes, but it's uh, I, That's I love why it. you brought me and the governor to sort of round <laughs> out the dialogue. We're going to need a lot more characters, though. Every yeah. week, Scott's going to bring a new character. Lord, well, how do you, Lord know, how do you know I'm not just a chameleon that could take on different shapes? Pro. <laughs> but guys, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for being with me yet again. Great being here. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, Drop over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a favorable one. As always, The Mockingcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, now ably assisted by David Peterson. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our listeners and readers, and for that, we are eternally grateful. Have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next week.